0: Welcome to La Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. How do we deal with that persisting sin? Even though we're saved, we still sin. Two extreme cases are the license to sin or the legalism of keeping God's Word. Maybe Jude finds us a middle ground. You're listening to Mercy and Fear by Reverend Peter Yonker. For today's sermon, we turn together to the letter of Jude, second to last book of the Bible. Well, we're reading the whole letter because it's only uh, one chapter, so we're reading the whole thing. And um, let's just say a little bit before we start to read. As you may know, we're in the middle of a sort of a sermon mini series. So throughout the season of Easter, when we don't have a special service like Pentecost or Ascension or Gem Sunday, which is next week, we will look at some of these small and, I think, somewhat neglected letters of the New Testament. And today we're looking at Jude. Jude is a book that tradition tells us was written by the half-brother of Jesus. And we think it is a, um, what they call it, a general letter. So it's not written to one specific church, probably. It's probably a general letter that was sent to a variety of churches addressing a problem that was common to the all common to them all and it probably happened in the Palestine area because Jude was probably based in Jerusalem. What else can we say about Jude? Uh, Jude is kind of like the name of the New Testament in the sense that it's a book that everybody knows is there but nobody reads and even fewer people understand, okay? Jude is a hard book. It's got a lot of judgment when you read it, it will leave you confused and it will make you, it will make you wince. It's not easy to read. Uh, I'm not aware, for example, of any uh, posters or coffee mugs that have inspirational quotes from Jude on them. They probably exist, I just don't know about them. Um, and here's what the great Bible scholar Raymond Brown actually said about the book of Jude. He said this, We owe Jude reverence, because it's a book of sacred scripture, But its applicability to ordinary life remains a formidable difficulty. And anyone who's who's prepared for this church service by reading through Jude will know what he's talking about. It's not easy to read this book and get an immediate sense of how I apply this to my life. So you may ask, why are you preaching on Jude? Well, because it's in the Bible. I'm a minister of the word. And you have assigned me, called me, to preach, as they used to say, the whole counsel of God. Which means I can't just preach on the fun parts and the easy parts. I have to preach on the hard parts. So today we're going to hear one of the hard parts. And I'm going to do that in two bits. Part one of this sermon is going to be just figuring out what Jude is saying making sense of his obscure references. And I'm going to do that as I read. So the whole first, the Bible reading in this sermon is going to take one half of the sermon because I'm going to stop and try to explain what Jude is saying along the way, okay? And then when we're done that, then we'll talk about how is this word applied to the church and to our lives. Okay, let's turn to Jude and hear what he has to say. Jude... A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. It's a beautiful beginning, no hint of the judgment to come, but now it starts to get interesting. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God, the blood of Jesus Christ, into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Okay, here's the reason for Jude's letter. Right, there's false teachers, are getting around, and they are starting to mislead the church. Specifically, they're using the grace of God as a license for immoral behavior. And now he goes on to give three examples of why they should be cautious because people have been misled in the past. Verse five, example one. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Example two. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change, for judgment on the great day. Example three. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, we have to stop here. Example one, we know. The rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness and how that got them into trouble. Example three, we know. The lust and violence that happened in Sodom. But what is this second example? What are these angels who abandon their proper position and now are kept and locked in darkness awaiting judgment? Well, if you knew your Jewish apocalyptic literature, of course you'd know who those angels were. This is a reference to an extra-biblical book that most Jews of those days would have known, and that book is the book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, the story is told of a group of angels in heaven who looked down on the newly created world and its people and saw especially the females of the world and found them very beautiful and attractive. And this is what happened. This is what Enoch says. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld these women, they became enamored of them and said to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men and let us beget their children. So they were supposed to remain in heaven, but their internal desires got the better of them. They went after human wives and they lost their place and fell. They were misled. Okay, continuing. Verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, we need to stop again. Again. What is Jude talking about when he says these false teachers heap abuse on celestial beings? Okay, lots of debate about this, but I think the best answer is this is absolutely to do with their rejection of God's laws and God's ways. Because in Jewish thought, the law and angels are connected. Angels are part of the delivery of the law. God makes the law. But angels are the mediators who deliver the law. That was a common belief in Judaism. And it's actually something that you hear in the New Testament. In Acts 7, when Stephen is making his speech before the Sanhedrin, and he confronts them, he says, You are the ones that receive the law that was ordained by angels. Okay? Laws ordained by angels. Galatians 3.19 Paul says that the law was ordained through angels by a mediator. And in Hebrews 2, the law is referred to the message declared by angels. Okay, so the law and the angels are associated in Jewish thought. And so the idea is that they're slandering the law because they're saying, we now have Jesus. We're people of grace. We don't need those angels. They gave us the law. We're not people of the law anymore. Forget that law. Forget those angels. Slandered them. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Okay, raise your hand if you understood everything in that section. We need to stop again. The archangel Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. Did I miss a Sunday school class? What is Jude talking about here? No, you didn't miss a Sunday school class. This is another extra biblical source. We heard something from the book of Enoch. This is from another source called The Assumption of Moses. And we don't even have this whole book anymore. You can't find the whole thing. We only have remnants of it. And the Assumption of Moses tells a story of how when Moses died on Mount Nebo, the devil came and tried to take him to hell because Moses was a murderer, right? Remember, Moses killed the Egyptian overseer. So the devil comes and says, he can't possibly live with the Most High, he's a sinner. And the Archangel Michael comes along and says, no way and he contends with the devil and wins back Moses' body. And what Jude is saying is that when that happened, um, because the devil, even though he's terrible, and even though he's a fallen being, he's still a celestial being, he's still an angel. So even in that contention, Michael was respectful so that the worst thing he would say to the devil was, the Lord rebuke you. In contrast, these false teachers that he's talking about, they are just slanderous and disrespectful. They say terrible things. They have no impulse control. Verse 11. Woe to them! They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. Three Old Testament examples of rebellion. Rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up in their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. All right, this is the... this is the part that makes you wince, right? This is the hard, this is very severe here. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict them all of the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders, They follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and they flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you that in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who will divide you, who follow merely natural instincts, And do not have the Holy Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now that we at least have a, a, some sense of what Jude is talking about, how is this word applied to the church? How is this word applied to our lives? Um, and I think to get at that, you have to realize that Jude's letter all centers around one very important spiritual question that faces all believers. And that question is, what do we do with our persistent sin? All of us are forgiven people, we've been baptized, we've been washed in the blood of the lamb, we've been cleansed, and yet we still sin. We still do these terrible things. We still do these things that drive ourselves crazy, that we don't understand why we keep on doing them. And this is a problem not just for Christians, this is a problem for every human being. Unless they're a sociopath, every human being has this sense of self-frustration with themselves. A sense that I'm not the person I'm supposed to be. I want to behave like this and I keep behaving like that. Even though I know this behavior is self-defeating and self-destructive, I can't stop myself. I have these habits of mind and these habits of action. What is the matter with me? A universal problem, particularly acute for those who've received the Holy Spirit and those who are in Christ. We do these things, and we feel guilt, and we feel shame. When you read Jude, you realize that he's challenging one of the false answers to this problem that rose up in the early church. In the early church, if you read scripture, there are two false solutions to this problem that people come up with. And Jude is responding to one of those false solutions. Jude is addressing the problem of license, licentiousness. One of the ways people deal with persistent sin is to give license to it. And what that means is that when you sin, the problem isn't your sin necessarily, it's the fact that you feel so much guilt and you feel so much shame. Your sin isn't the problem. The problem is you beat yourself up too much that you feel bad about it. You're free in Christ, you're a resurrected being. You shouldn't feel so bad. You're done with guilt. So in this way of thinking, to give a specific example, imagine that you, know, you had a barbecue at your house and you drank way too much and you ended up getting so drunk that you passed out on your own front lawn in the middle of the afternoon. You lay there for two hours, your neighbors see you, kids from the neighborhood see you. And you wake up and you feel guilt because you did this thing and you feel shame because all these people saw you. Well, in the way that these false teachers are teaching, it's, hey, that's, you shouldn't feel bad about that. If you want to, you know, go drink a little bit, that's your free, you're free, you're, you're resurrected being. You're set free from the power of sin and guilt and all those things. That's what the resurrection's about, right? That's your business if you want to do those things. And who are those people to, to judge you? If you've got friends who are judging you and making you feel bad and putting negativity into your life, You got to get new friends. Find some people who affirm you, make you feel good about yourself. Read Jude closely, and it's pretty clear that that's the line that these false teachers are taking. Verse 4 they pervert the grace of God, this freedom that we have in Christ, use grace as a license for immorality. Verse 16. They simply follow their own evil desires. If it feels good, they do it. I mean, I think if you're listening closely, you hear Jude repeatedly talk about giving into instinct like they were animals, right? And Jude isn't the only place where in the New Testament we are warned against the excesses of license. Uh, First Corinthians, it's pretty clear that Paul is dealing with that problem in the Corinthian church. And in the book of Romans, Paul talks about people who say, let us sin so that grace may abound. And he says that those people's sin is justly condemned. Now, there is no question that sometimes we forgiven Christians overdo sin and guilt. Sometimes we feel a sense of shame and a sense of guilt that is way out of bounds with the sins that we've committed and who we are. Sometimes we let sin and guilt and shame overwhelm us in a way that is toxic. And there's no question that Jesus died on the cross to set us free from that toxic shame and that toxic guilt. But there's also no question that there are things we do where we ought to feel guilty. And we should feel ashamed. Larry Nassar ought to feel both guilt and shame for what he did. When I think back to my youth and the way I used to sit and tolerate and put up with and did not confront racist and sexist jokes, and if I'm honest, sometimes tell them, I feel shame and guilt. And that shame and guilt is appropriate because it was attached to a heart that was not fully surrendered to God. Now that shame and guilt do not define me. They're not the center of who I am. I don't hold that shame at the center of my heart. I am a forgiven child of God and the joy of Jesus is the center of me. But I remember that shame and guilt as a way to guide me down his paths. Jude is sharp. And he is judgmental in this letter because he does not want people to sin. He thinks sin is terrible. Sin is awful. It hurts people. Sin is the cause of injustice and oppression. Sin destroys family and shreds relationships. Sin causes both physical and spiritual death. And Jude will not stand by. while people use the grace of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus as a justification to sin and to hurt each other in this profound way. That's why he's so sharp. That's why he sounds so judgmental. He will not put up with license. That's one extreme that the church takes, the early church takes in opposition to persistent sin. But sometimes they slide over to the opposite extreme. Instead of license to deal with our persistent sin, the early church takes the way of legalism. Some communities dealt with sin by becoming hypervigilant. When a church community strays into legalism, Everyone's looking at each other and making sure they keep every single last rule, ready to jump down each other's throat if there's one misstep. When a church takes the way of legalism, there's a rule for everything, and everybody is always watching each other to make sure those rules are observed. When a church takes the way of legalism, grace is forgotten, Patience is forgotten, forbearance is forgotten, and you have outrage in a kind of moral cancel culture. The New Testament definitely speaks out against this way as well. Paul is constantly fighting legalism. and That's the whole book of Galatians. The Galatians want the church to keep every single last one of the Old Testament laws. And Paul says, please, if we're saved by our works, why did Christ die? This is grace. Grace is at our center. Forgiveness is the center of who we are, says Paul. And if we're old enough, I'm guessing some of you lived in a Christian Reformed church that experienced a little bit of legalism. I didn't experience it quite as much as some, but I know I talked to some of my older ministerial colleagues who tell stories of other colleagues who would go to a new church and after about six months get a visit, from the elders about a sin they were concerned about. Uh, Apparently the minister's wife was wearing shorts about town and did she have no shame? That's legalism. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I won't say who it was. Someone from this church came to me this morning, minister's spouse, retired and told me that she was told in no uncertain terms that she was not allowed to wear slacks around town. That that was forbidden, and that's legalism. Everybody watching each other. So you have two destructive ways about dealing with persistent sin: license, everything goes, we're forgiven; legalism, nothing gets passed. The New Testament clearly says no to both those ways of dealing with that sin. So if that's not how we do it, if those ways are not the answer, how do we, as a community, deal with our persistent sin? Maybe exactly in the way that Jude says. But you, dear friends, keep yourself in God's love by building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, as you wait for the mercy of the Lord to bring you eternal life. As you wait for the mercy of the Lord to bring you eternal life. Despite the harsh tone of this book, the mercy of Jesus Christ is at the center of Jude. When he begins his letter, what does he wish for the community? Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. May you be a community filled with mercy. And when he describes Jesus' return, what does Jude say Jesus will bring with him? Mercy. And when you find someone who doubts, what do you show that person? Mercy, have mercy on those who doubt. And what do you say to your fellow church member who's really struggling with their sin? What do you show to them? You show them mercy, mixed with fear because sin is bad, but you show them mercy. Mercy. In this community, we don't deal with our sin by trying to nag each other into righteousness, nor do we sweep away sin because we hate it. We take our persistent sin and we fall on our knees together before the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we say, Lord, I know I'm your child, but I'm struggling. I've been trying to get rid of this feeling. I've been trying to get rid of these thoughts. I've been trying to get rid of this sin, and I can't. And I need you to help me wash me clean and make me new little by little. And he does it. He washes you. He covers you with his mercy. And he makes you new bit by bit. So yes, Jude is a book that makes you wince. But judgment is not at its center. Mercy is at its center. And at the center of your life is his mercy that is new every morning. So let me finish today the way Jude finishes with that great doxology which shows you the mercy that's at the center of your life. Jude says to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only god our savior be glory majesty power and authority through Jesus Christ our lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know how each and every one of us struggle with some part of the persistence of sin in our life. We thank you that here in this place we find a community of mercy. Lord, let your mercy fill us. We fall on our knees again today. We ask you to give us the strength by your Spirit to change us bit by bit by bit. Lord, thank you for that promise that one day we will appear before you without fault and with great joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.